Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. I pointed this out in my remarks last week, two weeks ago at Jackson Hole, 10 days ago, that uh, what Paul Volcker did and the Fed did to finally get inflation under control followed several failed attempts to get inflation under control. And, and what had happened over the course of that long period of great inflation is that the public had really come to think of higher inflation as the norm and to expect it to continue. And that's what, what made it so hard to get inflation down in that case. So it, it is very much uh, our view and my view that we need to act now forthrightly strongly as we have been doing and we need to keep at it until the job is done to avoid that. We think we can avoid the kind of very high social costs that, that Paul Volcker and the Fed uh, had to bring in, into play in order to get inflation back down and set us up then for, for a long period of price deploy. That is Jerome Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, laying it on the line. Interest rates will increase until morale improves. That's the only way it could possibly be said. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What's going on, everybody? Good to be with you. Find everything, of course, at TonyKatz.Locals.com. That's how it's done. TonyKatz.Locals.com. So we're going to see a three-quarter percent interest rate increase. The European Central Bank has also raised rates by 75 basis points. And you should expect it again in another month or so. You've got mortgage rates that are hitting over 6%. This is it. Now, if if we're going to talk about Volcker and we're going to go a little bit back in history, let's also remember uh, that these economic conditions are exacerbated by government spending and by not leaving well enough alone. If you go back to the Depression, the Depression, the Great Depression of the 30s could have ended earlier if not for government interference a fair amount of government interference things could have been better faster government trying to fix things tweak things add things control things anytime that's happening that is the market not being able to do its freaking job, which is to solve its own problems. If you want to argue whether the Fed actually does its job, I think history shows that the Fed does not do its job. And I think the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 is one of the tipping points of America, as I recall, as I refer to it as the lean of America. In 1913, three things happened. You had the direct election of senators. Remember, senators used to be picked by state legislatures. Then you had the creation of the Fed. Then you had the income tax. Three things that I believe led to the tilt of America and have led to the last 100 plus years of serious issue. Senators playing to the the whims of the populace as opposed to engaging conversations within a federal side of representing their state properly. There is no need to represent the state properly. You're representing whatever uh, fringe or whatever uh, a majority rule there may be. 
the House of Representatives is meant to engage the, 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 the whims, the desires, the passions of the people, more connected, more responsible to the people in those more localized areas and elected every two years. But the point of a senator being six years is to give them time to allow them to, to engage great debate. Isn't that what the Senate's supposed to be? The world's most deliberative body? It means things are supposed to go slow and go without the passions. That's its purpose. I believe the, the, the decision there and, and the creation, or I should say the decision to have the direct election of senators in 1913 affects greatly what has happened in America. The Fed affects greatly what has happened in America. They were there. They were created to uh, bring down the wild gesticulations of the market. The highs never get too high. The lows never get too low. Is that what we have? Is that what we've created? Is that go through history? Are we better off? I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with noticing. Nope. We're not. We are not. So if if the federal government can learn anything from history, it's that to leave the moment, don't engage more spending, don't fix things. Now, they haven't done that already. The American Rescue Plan was more spending, and they all love it. Oh, they talk about, look at all the money being spent by the American Rescue Plan. Look what we're doing for our, for our communities. At what cost? And then they're amazed. Look at these Republicans. They didn't vote for it, but notice they're using the money. You gave them the money. Don't get angry with the municipality. Don't think you're like on some kind of high horse because you gave a city money. They're going to spend it. Republicans taking credit for all the spending. No, they're not. The spending was a bad idea. The tax and spend policies of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, bad idea that exacerbates the situation. Paying off student loans, forgiveness, who, who gets forgiven? You and I still pay. Creates more spending. And spending is the thing that needs to cease. Stop putting money into the economy. Start pulling money out of the economy. And that would happen if you had more goods to purchase. If you had better supply chain. And then things can slowly get better. The Bank of England said it'll take three years to get back to their target rate of 2% inflation. You know that you have members of the center say, oh, this this wasn't going to get fixed right away. Oh, this wasn't going to get fixed uh, right away. My gosh, why would you ever think that we said just because we passed the Inflation Reduction Act that it was going to bring down prices, you know, immediately? Is it misleading to call this the Inflation Reduction Act for Americans when it's not going to make their grocery bill cheaper? It's not going to make everyday goods cheaper for them. Why would it? Why would it? Well, immediately it's not. But we never said anything happened immediately. Like today, it's turned the switch on and off. You told us that this was going to help with inflation, and then, of course, you told us that had nothing to do with, with, with inflation. It never had anything to do with inflation. It all had uh, to do with uh, climate. I mean, this is Representative uh, Elaine Luria, a, a Democrat. As you mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act, that might be the name, but it's a huge environmental bill that includes a lot of things, such as the tax credits necessary um, to make these kind of developments. So it's not about inflation. It was an environmental bill. We know this to be true. But back to Jerome Powell, because while he is absolutely speaking truth and dealing with the fact that he can't, you can't go on 
playing around the edges, he also said this. Of great uh, monetary policy conferences. So I, I think a good entry point for, for that question, Peter, is to start by recalling that before the pandemic, uh, unemployment was at a 50-year low, inflation was low and stable, and the economy was growing stable, sorry, steadily, uh, with no obvious imbalances threatening continued expansion. So, of course, in that sense, none of this high inflation that we see around the world now would have happened without the pandemic. Um, uh, the pandemic severely disrupted the economy, gave rise to risks of much more dire economic consequences than actually transpired, really. And that was thanks in part to the policy response. So um, to start with policy, there's no question that policy certainly supported strong demand. But in my view, you would not have seen anything like the inflation that we have seen without the pandemic effects. And those pandemic effects include both shifts, shifts in demand and also playing a, a, a role in not solely causing, but playing a role in the supply side constraints that emerged. I don't think anybody should deny that the pandemic, if you're going to shut down business around the globe, uh, that can affect the ability to get goods. But we can argue policy that kept markets from getting back open, kept people from getting back on the job. And look what it exposed in problems that already existed, like, for example, how tenuous and fragile the supply chain is. In a, a, a part, if not a large part, because we don't have proper ports. We have so relied on the longshoremen and the power of that union, which has kept out technology and, to an extent, people. So the port of Long Beach, Los Angeles, those two ports aren't able to run at any level of proper efficiency because they're not designed to run at proper efficiency. So when you have the hiccup, the hiccup becomes exacerbated. I would also argue that you would have seen increases in inflation under Biden policies, regardless because Biden policies are not growth policies. And I don't know how Jerome Powell could not admit that there's there's a truth in that. There is absolutely a truth in that. You just listened to him talk, you just heard him talk about how things were before the pandemic. You mean in the days of Trump. Which is not only about policy, it's attitudinal. The Trump administration was not adversarial to business, business growth, business opportunity. The Biden administration is because progressives are. That is, that's that's just a statement of fact. That's not necessarily a debatable subject. Now, is it? What could possibly be the debate here? Of course, of course, of course, the Biden administration, the progressives are indeed antithetical to growth. They're opposed to growth. They're opposed to big business. They only favor business that is in line with them. Only the approved businesses. That's what we see time and again and again. I think it was I think it was William Barr. Do I, I think I have this. Uh William Barr uh is uh the attorney general. And he was on Fox News talking about ESG. 
ESG is environment social governance. What ESG is, is think of it in the way the Chinese have the social credit score. They have cameras everywhere. Are you smiling or are you frowning? And they, they rate you. And depending on your social credit score, your, your type of job, whether you can travel, all these kinds of things. We see this play out in the United States in regards to this ESG. Well, you gotta, you gotta be with us on this environmental policy. You gotta be doing these things. Otherwise, we won't work with you. You can't get government contracts. We're gonna, we're gonna cause you problems. You, you won't get a loan. And uh, William Barr was discussing this on Fox. If I could play it, I'd be, I'd be super, super dangerous, I tell you. I mean, crazy dangerous. Let me try that again. Let me make sure. Let me see if I can do this. Let me see if I can do this uh, right here. Investing of billions, if not That's trillions Bill of dollars, asking the question. Right? The headline is ESG can't square with fiduciary duty. ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And there are big investment firms that take money in 401ks and they put it into... Um, companies that they believe are working for the social good. Let's characterize right. it that way. Right. You point out that they also invest in communist China. So how do we square this right now in the investment world? What's the argument you're making? Well, it goes beyond the investment world. In the, the argument I'm making is that this is a tremendous concentration of wealth that is using it in an abusive way. Abusive. Abusive and, and, and circumventing the whole democratic process. When little investors go out and buy ETFs, funds, and other things, as you say, the ownership is technically in the hands of a f mainly of three big companies, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, and some others, but those are the big three. And technically, these people own a you know, high percentage of stock in these companies, and they're dictating to the companies policies like energy policy and things like that. So when they tell a, a big company, stop producing oil, or we're going to vote against you, essentially. Uh, that's setting that's setting national policy, and they're using other people's money to throw their weight. Can you around. stop this or change this? I mean, if you that, that's a, a rather good explanation of what's going on, uh, a very good explanation of the danger of of these people. One should ask of Jerome Powell, chairman of the Fed, exactly how will these policies affect the economy, affect inflation, as you have three groups, four groups, in conjunction with the federal government, an ideological government, saying these are the approved. These are the approved, uh, and, and that's that. It is a radically un-American thought process. It certainly is not a capitalist thought process. But then again, they're not even thinking about capitalism because they don't believe in capitalism. That is to the progressives in, in, in total. That's who they are. How does that not lead to inflationary policies and inflationary numbers? So to say it's COVID is not necessarily wrong. But to say that Biden policies and Biden approach and progressive approach won't get us to the same exact place if it took another two months, the answer is yes. The answer is obvious, clear, well-defined, and well-written out. It's not necessarily deniable. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. Okay.
know when I come back, you know what it look like. Everything lit, all the girls in free. Everybody inside, sipping on a good time. You ain't got a risk, they can put it on me. When they wanna go, they know all my money shows. That is Steve Bannon showing up. In New York, uh, to surrender himself to authorities, charges from the state uh, there, charges, uh, I think, is it, is it New York City or is it the state? No, I think it's the city. I think it's uh, uh, Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan District Attorney, uh, is saying uh, that uh, Steve Bannon, former advisor uh, to President Trump, of course, he ran Breitbart for a while, he does his own radio show now, uh, that he defrauded people. When he was raising money to build the wall himself with a group of people. So he is, of course, uh, taking it to them. This is an attack. I'll never, I'll never be defeated. I, I won't let these people win. Because, of course, that's what he's going uh, to say. Of course, that's what he's going uh, to say. Now, you know, by the way, Tony Katz, hey, how are you? Tony Katz today. It's been a long time since I've spoken to Steve Bannon, but I know Steve. I've had dinner with Steve. He's always been very, very nice to me. Anybody who ever called him an anti-Semite, I laughed out loud at that level of ignorance. But I also have other stories about Steve. When Steve uh, took over Breitbart, I said, okay, I'm not going to do any work with Breitbart. When Steve Bannon left Breitbart, I emailed immediately to say, if you want me, here I am. I didn't like where he took uh, the the, the site. I didn't like how he engaged. It, It wasn't for me. Plain and simple. And I I don't shy away from that. If you were trying to raise money for something you weren't ever going to do and you took money from people, that's something you may have to deal with. But what's so fascinating, and I I wasn't going to discuss this, but I was on uh, News Nation uh, last night. And uh, and I got, this was the the topic. I'm like, Steve Bannon's the topic. I looked around at some uh, sites, let, let, let's call them um, conservative sites. Nobody was talking about Steve Bannon. No one was talking a- about Steve Bannon. I looked high and low. No one's having a word about Steve Bannon. So why are people still talking about him? I, and I, and I, what, I, what I said yesterday in News Nation was that first, people love a boogeyman. They 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 love uh, something they can point their their anger, their frustration, their hate at. Uh, and, and secondly, people have got much bigger fish to fry, and Bannon is not well the, the mover and shaker that he was. So this may play in the CNNs and the MSNBCs of the world. I don't think it's playing in the real world. People are much more focused on many many other subjects and bigger uh, subjects. But we'll keep our eye on the trial because this is what we do. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today. All the liars are calling me one. Nobody's heard from me for months. I'm doing better than I ever was. Week one of the NFL season getting ready to kick off. Uh, look, look, I- I'm, I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, it's a new season. I'm willing to watch until they get woke. And if they get woke, then I will not watch. But I will give them the opportunity because last season, or a couple seasons ago, it got ridiculous. Last season, I didn't see as much uh, uh, of the wokeness. I think they may have realized, you know, people may very well just want to watch football. 
Like, that may be the thing uh, that they're interested in, and they're not interested in the rest of the madness. Tony Katz, good to be with you. Tony Katz today, that's the name of the show. JMV joins us right now from 93.5107.5, the fan, 3 to 6 p.m., Monday through Friday. Uh, week one, we start tonight, uh, the Bills and the Rams. But before we get into the actual game, uh, storylines from this season. What is it that, that, that you're hearing? What is it that people are talking about? What are the predictions for who's going to the Super Bowl? Well, again, Buffalo was one of those teams. Uh, the Rams would be one of those teams from the NFC. Obviously, the Chiefs would be one. Uh, the Bengals, the AFC rep from a year ago, would be another. All top teams that people expect to be there. When it's said and done coming up at the end of January, but with the Colts in mind, it starts right here, Tony. You've got a couple of must-wins in week one and week two, and I know that sounds outlandish, but it's true because it's not been great obviously, for the Colts in Jacksonville as at the end of the season a year ago. That's a week two matchup within the division to start the season, and then they start coming up on Sunday in Houston. You've got to get off to a great start. This team hasn't been off to a great start in the past a handful of years and losing, so that puts these games, these beginning games of the season at a premium, and especially that of Houston, and I think you look at the bottom line of the Colts season this year, Tony, you have to win the division. You have to get into the postseason. There are some half-twos with this group with Frank Reich and Chris Ballard and it starts right there. But the have-tos, if we're going if we're going to focus on the Colts, which I don't mind doing, the have-tos yeah. are about Frank Reich and Chris Ballard. They've been given the extensions, they've been given the leeway, they were forgiven for the Carson Wentz era uh, 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 of the Colts. They've got Matt Ryan, they bring in Nick Foles. They they kept Ellinger on on the roster because they honestly don't want to give him up without getting something really good for it. You never know what's going to happen with with your quarterbacks. Uh, is this a uh, do-or-die season for the coach and for the GM? Well, I don't know if it's as we start a do-or-die. It all depends on, I think, how the season goes down. I'll give you a great example. A year ago, it ended so horrifically that I'm sure Jim Irsay, the owner, probably wanted to, to get rid of more than what he got rid of, and that was the quarterback in Carson Wentz. But if this thing, for example, Tony, if this thing goes haywire a little bit here, and they don't make the postseason, they don't win the division, and they don't live up to the expectations of the owner, it's not going to be Chris that's going to go this year, Chris Ballard, the general manager. It's going to be the head coach, Frank Wright, that's going to be on the hot seat then. If that happens, if it goes down that way, it's going to be the head coach first. Now, they're not in that situation, neither the general manager nor the head coach as of right now, but they could play, or at least in this case, Frank Wright could play his way onto that bubble if things don't go the way that the owner and certainly the fan base want to see it go, and that's one of the AFC South this season, Tony. Now let's take a look at the division. The Houston Texans, the Tennessee Titans, the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, Houston, uh, this week, I believe it is the four, no, it's a one o'clock uh, game uh, in Houston. Uh, they I don't even know who their quarterback is because Deshaun Watson is now in Cleveland. They moved players all over the place. This is a Texans team that is rebuilding. I don't see where the issue is in getting through week one with a victory. It's not. I mean, you can see the point spread here. I mean, the Colts are heavy favored, possibly the heaviest favorite I think we see for the opening weekend of this NFL season. Davis Mills is the quarterback. It's year number two. They view him as promising, but they, you know, he's not anything that you would consider uh, at great lengths a great quarterback in the NFL right now. Um, 
They have a new coach in Lovey Smith in year number one there with the Texans. And then, as you mentioned, there's a lot, a great deal of unknown going on here, just kind of a mixed bag. So there's no doubt the Colts should go down there and within reason kick the tail of the Texans and then move on to week two. But I'll give you a couple of reasons why, especially fans are a little bit apprehensive about making that call right now. It's because of the way that this team has started over the past five years. They have started horribly. Um, They have tried to change that up in training camp, um, change the dynamic of it so they feel they're better prepared, better ready to start the season if they haven't been. And it's also, Tony, the way that the season ended for the Colts a year ago. They had two opportunities at home home against the Raiders and then one on the road in Jacksonville to punch their ticket and, and go to the postseason and they failed at home in that home closer against the Raiders and then it was miserable. It was embarrassing against Jacksonville and they unceremoniously get punted out of the postseason and that's something obviously that was embarrassing for the franchise, embarrassing for Jim Irsay. So the fans kind of view that, Tony, as, all right, the last time we saw you guys, this is how you played and we're not going to get ahead of ourselves at all until we see this team play again. And oh, by the way, this team happens to have yet again another quarterback under center and this year's 37-year-old Matt Ryan. Talking to Jam V from 93.5107.5 The Fan. You take a look at Jacksonville, uh, bouncing Urban Meyer, the embarrassing season uh, that they had, all the promise, and of course, no delivery. You still have Trevor Lawrence, who can absolutely throw the ball. Um, what do they have on the roster that should make Colts fans worry? Well, they have edge rushers, no doubt about that. Colts have a left tackle in Matthew Pryor, Tony, that has little or no experience protecting the blind side of their 37-year-old quarterback. So I think if you're going to freak out about something a little bit, Colts fans probably are pointing the finger at that in week number two because Jacksonville can bring some edge rushing to the table. Uh, You mentioned Trevor Lawrence, who probably with Doug Peterson, a Super Bowl-winning coach pedigree right there, uh, you would think much greater things offensively and a guy that was injured a year ago, a running back, who's kind of a, a jack-at-all-trades, if, if you will, like a Naheem Hines, for example, they expect here with the Colts. Travis Etienne is a guy that is back healthy again, and they're going to expect a lot offensively. With And Christian Kirk is a guy from Arizona they brought in as a free agent wide receiver. So they're looking to make that offense more dynamic, led by Trevor Lawrence, and that's the expectation because, as you rightly mentioned in opening up with that, that question, um, last year was a joke for them with Urban Meyer. I mean, it was a joke all the way around. Again, they were kind of the clown show with that of the NFL and uh, the Kahn family and certainly Doug Peterson with that pedigree, I believe that they can turn it around and start that turnaround this season in Jacksonville. Now let's bring it uh, to the, the, the Colts roster. When it comes to tight ends, uh, we're solid. Mo Ali Cox is 900 feet tall, and then you you, you bring in the new guy whose whose name eludes me right now. Uh, a second round, I think it was a second round pick or third round pick, who people are are very high on. You'll 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 get the name for me. You have the name. You have it right sure. off. The I got you. Who is it? Uh, well, no, you got Jelani Woods in there. Jelani Woods. Cox. I could not think yeah, of Jelani yeah. Woods. Yeah, Jelani Woods, you're trying to think of the rookie out of Virginia. And then kind of between them, Tylen Granson is kind of a hybrid tight end, wide receiver type tight end guy that they expect a great deal from in year number two. Now, Tony, the pass catchers, and I lump them all together, wide receivers and tight ends, after Michael Pittman Jr., you have a variety of questions. And that 
decides how the left tackle plays this season offensively, I think is going to tell us the tale of the tape for this Colts offense this year. Because Michael Pittman Jr. is primed to have a big year, like a 100-catch year. But he's not going to shake loose of defensive double teams until guys like their second-round wide receiving pick Alec Pierce or a healthy Paris Campbell or an up-and-coming Ashton Doolin step up big and the same goes for the tight end position. You lose Jack Doyle, who has been a guy that you can always count on as a blocker, as a pass catcher, as a leader. He's gone. A lot's going to be uh, viewed upon as far as Mo Ali Cox and his production is concerned. You got Mo Ali Cox, Kylan Granson, and you got the rookie Jelani Woods, who's got a great deal of talent, but it is hard for rookies to come into the NFL. Yeah, but in this situation, production. in this situation, Jam, in this situation, that tight end becomes more necessary than ever. Mo Ali Cox is 267 pounds. You talk uh, uh, about uh, Kylan Granson uh, right there, 242 pounds. You talk about Jelani Woods. 253. You got to assume that on every play for the first couple of games, there's a tight end lined up next to that left tackle to help with the blocking on that blind side to allow Matt Ryan an opportunity to throw. And I assume that this is going to be a lot of block, 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 release, two yard gain if you're throwing to the tight end and you're, and you're checking down. That's going to be a lot of the game plan, right? Well, yeah, there's no doubt. And that's where Jack Doyle. With his retirement, that's one of the bigger question marks you have because he could do so much so well that you could count on. But in the pass-catching category, I wanted to leave this for last. You're going to see a lot of number 21. That's Naheem Hines being moved all over the place. He doesn't like to be called the jack-of-all-trades. Uh, he is certainly that. He is a hybrid running back, wide receiver. Michael Pittman Jr. during training camp came on my show and told me that he probably, from what he has seen as far as the playbook is concerned, belongs more in the wide receiving room than he does in the running back's room as far as their offense is concerned. So you're going to see a lot of opportunities, chances, and touches for Naheem Hines. And his development and usage and production is probably the biggest hinge on just how well this offense is going to be able to perform through the air this season. Talk about uh, the, the the running game just for a, a moment. You've got Naeem Hines. You have Deion Jackson. Of course, you have uh, Jonathan Taylor. Philip Lindsay isn't picked for the team for whatever reason, this is a guy who made the Pro Bowl a few years ago. Uh, he isn't picked up by another team. He gets signed to the Colts practice squad. Is there a mathematics that brings this guy back to the team? Do you run a team with four running backs? Yeah, Tony, here's what happens here. When they were cutting down to the 53-man, they went with Deion Jackson because Deion Jackson plays special teams and is a good special teams player. And they are concerned, Bubba Ventrone, the special teams coordinator, is concerned about this group moving forward. So you take a guy in Jackson instead of a guy that has been there and done that with a 1,000-yard rushing season in Philip Lindsay. Now, what was the plus, Tony, for the Colts is that Philip Lindsay went through all the waivers. Nobody claimed him. So he was out there. They picked him up a couple of days ago and put him back on the practice squad. So if Jonathan Taylor, who has never been injured, knock on wood here, if something were to happen to Jonathan Taylor, you could bring him up. You have him to back him up right now. Now, instead of a guy that more so as a backup in Deion Jackson, Tony is on this team because of the way he plays special teams, uh, again, more so than the way that he runs the football. That's how all that works. Your 
taking a look at this season, you're taking a look at this team, you're taking a look at a new quarterback, even though he's he's a veteran and a solid and a respected uh, a quarterback. You take a look at this uh, re- receiving core. Uh, as you have it, you've got a lot of options, uh, places uh, for um, for Matt Ryan to throw the ball. Your prediction, JMV, what is the Colts record come week 17? I'm sorry, week 18 because there's a bye. I got, uh, I got them a 10-win team and winning the AFC South, and I know you're going to say, wait a minute, 10 wins is not a lot. The schedule's difficult. I mean, they're matched, matched up with the AFC West, by far the best division in the NFL. Um, I have them at 10 and 7. They edge out Tennessee for the AFC South title. And then, you know, once you're a division champion like that, you will have a playoff home game. And then we'll see how much better they get at the end of the season. But I am going to ride on 10 wins. I will tell you this if we were playing the over under game right now, I would take the over. I could be talked into going to 11 much more than I could be talked into going to 9. Because if they go to 9 and they're outside looking into the postseason, that is not going to be good for the head coach so I say 10 right now but I could be talked into the over if the over under were 10 or 10 and a half right now I could be talked into 11 that's JMV 93.5 the fan 3 to 6 p.m check him out there JMV I appreciate you taking the time we've got more on Tony Katz I think this from Bob Iger, the former CEO of Disney. This is a very, very important statement he made on CNBC talking about Twitter. I did not know, or maybe I missed it. There was a moment where Disney was thinking about buying Twitter. I, I didn't know that. I don't. I don't recall that. And so Bob Iger is like, yeah, we thought about it, just uh just the problem interestingly enough because i watched i read the news these days about it we did look very carefully at all of the TikTok. i'm sorry all of the twitter um users i guess they're called users yes yeah and we at that point estimated with some twitter's help that a substantial portion not a majority were not real how many did you have? I don't remember. I don't remember the number, but we finished. discounted the value 10% heavily. 20, 20%. Don't remember. Okay. <laughs> don't remember. Um, uh, that was one, but that was built into our economics. Actually, the deal that we had was pretty cheap. The woman is the here you heard was the moderator. The the other voice you heard was just a guy in the crowd who I guess was asking the question. And you know it was about how mm-hmm. much of it I don't remember I don't remember the number. But we finished. discounted the value ten percent heavily. 20, 20%. Don't remember. Okay. <laughs> don't remember. Uh, and at that moment he puts his hands out like it, it was pretty big. It was pretty big and it got a laugh. <laughs> Um. <laughs> That's brutalizing to Twitter. That is, if I'm Elon Musk, I'm doing a little dance on top of a Tesla. I'm sending another rocket to the moon. Hey, send some more Starlink out there. I mean, how does this not help your case? Uh, Twitter lied. I'm not buying. We're done here. Don't even think you could force me into into buying this nonsense.
A substantial number of Twitter accounts are fake. Well, we know this because we're people who deal with Twitter, me less and less all the time, but we deal with it. The, I think the real question, the thing that people would be most interested in is what is the number of bots? What are the number of not fake accounts, but active accounts built for political purpose? Bots that echo certain behaviors, thing, things like that. That's the, 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 the question. What, what percentage is in this camp? What percentage is in that camp? That's what I think people would want to know. But I don't think there's any doubt that this is so damaging for Twitter. So damaging for Twitter. A substantial number of the, of the nonsense on Twitter is, is garbage. So now I, I go back, I go through all the people who, who like to come at me on Twitter. I'm like, you're not even real. You're not even real. How could you be? And and by the way, maybe they are real, but I'm getting I'm, they're giving me the opening to say, ah, fake. Fake, 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 fake. Oh man, Twitter's Twitter's value. Just getting punched in the face. Goodness, goodness, goodness gracious. Uh, find everything, TonyCats.locals.com, TonyCats.locals.com. I am actually on Twitter at Tony Katz, but you can do with that uh, what you will. Catch you tomorrow, everyone. Take care.